Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. Eric Helberg, thank you so much for being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience, man. I am super, super excited to have you here. I know we had a little bit of a challenge with our scheduling and all that kind of thing, but I'm glad we made this thing happen, man. Thank you so much. You and me both, Mike. Um, I'm trying to figure out, I think we we both met via our our individual podcasting journey. I'm glad it overlapped and um, we've kind of stayed in touch along the way. And here we are. I'm, I'm yeah, we've had absolutely no fun, by the way, just getting to know each other over the phone. So I know we're <laughs> going to have a good time. So what we do, and as we talked about before we hit record, is we get people's life stories. And the reason for it is we know everybody has a story and our passion is to help them tell it. And we know that getting your life story on tape is actually going to inspire and motivate people that connect with you on how, you know, depending upon what the situation is. So we're super excited to do that. So let's do this if you're okay with it. Let's start with where you were born. Where I was born. I was born in Lufkin, Texas. So for students of geography, that would be kind of uh, mid-central East Texas. Gotcha. And uh, my parents were going to uh, (laughs) SFA college at the time, both of them. And uh, I kind of derailed those collegiate plans. (laughs) And so um, I came along and we lived in an adjacent town close to where I was born for approximately a year. And um, I guess the reality of the situation hit Neither one of them completed school at that time, and we moved to Houston. And um, so really, I grew up um, both in incorporated massive city Houston, but I was so young. And then we moved out, as I can remember, and I got older into unincorporated Houston that was kind of in between that and an adjacent town that's gigantic now, like everything's grown. But really kind of a city when really, really small. And then uh, it's city now, but it was rural when it was being developed. I mean, when we moved to that subdivision, I was the sixth house in that subdivision around woods and crops and lakes. And they just, they built this thing out. So you wow. wouldn't recognize it now, but plenty of places to uh, to run and gun as a kid. Yeah. So was that the Woodlands? <laughs> no. I don't think the Woodlands at that time, that wasn't even on the map, man, off, really? uh, off 40, off 45 up there, North Houston. Yeah. Um, and that's not even North Houston now. I mean, but the Woodlands is, uh, that, that's highfalutin living and uh, big companies there, lots of fancy, nice places. But no, we were out toward Katy, which oh, would have been West. Picture going out towards San Antonio. Yeah, Katy's, Katy's grown a lot. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it was that is when it was really beginning. I mean, you have to realize, I think Houston hit a million people for the first time in 1970. Wow. And so we probably moved out to where I'm talking about in 76. Yeah. And uh, so we were, you know, we were in that boom. In fact, the high school I went to um, when we started it, ninth, tenth. Yeah, we only had ninth and 10th grades. We added a, a successive grade each year, and we were the first graduating class of that high school as they were anticipating growth and had to build these things out. Wow, that's crazy. So yeah. what was your favorite thing about growing up there? <laughs> um, For a young man, and uh, hey, man, I, I wish that for for all kids now. I mean, you look at the old days. I mean, I'm 53. You may be older than me, Mike. Hell, I don't know. I'm 57. But, okay, well, we're right in that ballpark. I mean, if you looked at some of those old pictures, it may be me and two of my buddies on, you know, I mean, when I got a mongoose bicycle or they had a huffy that looked like a motorcycle, when I got one of those i mean i thought i was king shit man yeah that was the deal yeah. man that was the deal right there so that first bike when i graduated and got that one with those shocks and that yep. fuel tank and i tore that one to heck then i graduated to a mongoose but if you look at pics with a couple of buddies that was really cool now you got guys that can't spread their legs and move and everything is unless you you deliberately move out to the country which we did with our kids yeah um, you missed out on a hellified experience. I had, I had unlimited places to run woods, streams to ford. Um, of course, you know, where the subdivision was growing, I got into a lot of mischief too. So, I mean, since I had that wood line, we'd take sweet gum balls off sweet gum trees. We'd hide behind a neighbor's shrubs and pelt these cars coming down and we'd just run to the woods and we had a trail that went back to the new street they had built and you know, it was just that that's my fondest memories is being able to uh leave your house when you got home from school and come back whenever uh whenever I guess you needed to eat. Being a kid. And, uh, being a kid and in that's a real sense, yeah. So yeah, when you were in we're high school. That. When you were in high Say, school when you were in high school, mm -hmm. did you play sports? You know what? I really didn't. And um it's kind of crazy. Um, I may have tried football, Mike, <laughs> in 10th grade just for a little bit. And um, everyone wanted me to play. Well, you, well here, I'm going to back up and I'm going to help you because we're building stories. Right. So you got to realize that my dad died right before I turned eight. And oh, that God, dude was know. like, and I'm going to remember this high school part. And he was my hero because he was a total badass. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm saying that in a good way and I'm saying it in a bad way because under the auspices of selling, remember in the seventies and you're a real estate guy. So you know about this stuff. Remember when Datsuns were introduced to America, the compact Datsuns, mm -hmm. then you had like the 240, 60, 280Zs, all that stuff. Yep. I remember those. Well, that was kind of like his cover job and he sold a ton of cars. But what he was really doing was dealing drugs, and he was a sports bookie. Hmm. So I used to spend my evenings with him going to every conceivable sporting event imaginable. My mom wasn't with us. And um, 
so I got to meet a lot of interesting dudes, got to see him in action. And, um, you know, he was as smooth as Telly Savalas, but he did have a full head of hair. <laughs> and uh, but if you crossed him, I don't know at what level he was at or what, but I mean, I saw him beat down many a men. And uh, wow. uh, if you've listened to any of my shows, I told you it was terrifying, but it was also electrifying. Yeah. I wanted to be like that dude. Sure. And uh, but at the same time, um, I wanted to have a uh, something maybe that was the good Lord gave me more of a genteel spirit and I didn't want to be in trouble. And that's the only thing that really kept me, because once he passed, my mom, who was still very young, my dad died right before he turned 30. Um, she had like this crazed preoccupation with finding a new mate a new spouse therefore it was just me i was flying solo man i mean sometimes i got to go out with some of these boyfriends and uh one of them was really good to me because he was kind of like a rich oil man and uh, but she kind of had this uh, predisposition you had to be something like that a doctor or a lawyer and um so i pretty much raised myself and i ended up leaving home at 17 now that takes us right into what were you saying? Oh, so sports. Yeah. Yeah. I played the smallest, like little league sports up until like junior high. Mm -hmm. And honestly, by the time high school kicked in, I was at such a loss, Mike. I had no idea where I belonged. I knew I was athletic because they had this, one guy kind of took an interest in me. His name was Craig DeSurf. He was Mr. Texas. Okay. Bodybuilder. And his best friend was Lee Labrada. So those lean body shakes you see at every store. Mm -hmm. Lee Labrada finished third in the Mr. Olympia competition three years in a row. And his brother-in-law was Samir Banut, who had won the Olympia in 82. Right. So California bodybuilding's crazy. Those dudes were there. Mm -hmm. I used to sit on those dudes' backs or on their leg press machine when they were working out when I was 15. So I had all that was, I mean, was really active, but I just couldn't either. It was insecurity thought I would fail. I don't know, but interestingly, so no, I didn't play in high school, but I'll tell you what I did do when I oh, left dude. home at 17. Um, I had no idea what to do with my life. I, I thought you just go to college and get rich. Mm -hmm. So I go to University of Texas. I mean, that's a that's like going to UCLA or SoCal out in your neck of the woods mm -hmm. and walked on the team without playing any organized football, made the team, was in the backfield as a tailback and halfback with Darren Norris from Oceanside, California, All-American. Yeah, yep. Darren and, and I went to school together, yeah. Well, then there you go. And Eric Metcalf, who finished second in the Heisman Trophy. The only thing was... With no guidance and no direction, <clears throat> I was figuring out football pretty quick, but I didn't know how to make good grades, so I failed out. And uh, that kind of led to a circuitous route to me uh, going into the Army. Wow. So so you, so you, basically, you go to UT. So yeah. you're a Longhorn for how long? A uh, semester. A semester? Okay. All right. Yeah. So, they let me uh, in under probationary status mike because i mean I, I didn't excel in school and in high school i did just what i needed to get by yeah okay yeah so so you so you basically in you, you use your terms you flunk out right um yep. 
And so then how does the army thing happen? How the army thing happens. Well, then imagine this. I flunk out. I'm not sure. I uh, I really had no relationship with my mom by then. I rolled out. I mean, I hardly ever saw her growing up. Uh, sometimes she'd come home in the evenings. She had her section of the house. I'm not saying I was deprived in any way when it came to money or nice clothes. I just didn't have a parental figure. So she'd right. go to her section. So um, I really had nowhere to go. So I went to my grandparents and talked to them. And I was a lot closer to them. That was really the undergirdment of stability mm-hmm. was her parents. So right after my father had passed, I would go to where they lived in another city and spend those summers. Those were indispensable to me because my uh, my grandfather was pretty big in church. He had a real responsible job at one of the big refineries. A lot of people knew him. And so it moved from one venue to another whereby I had carte blanche to run around and be a kid. And then I also knew I had some people that cared about me and some safety. Without that, yeah, no telling. Um, so imagine this, I fell out of UT and I come back to where my grandparents live, which is uh, Port Arthur. So Beaumont, Texas, Port Arthur area. Mm-hmm. And I start selling these, I know you've heard of them, Cutco knives. Yep, absolutely. We've had some people on that, that sold Cutco knives. Well, I'll tell you what, back when I was selling them, there was this lady, man, how smart was she? She was like 54 at that time. Her name was Margaret Bola out of San Diego. Mm-hmm. She was the number one sales rep for Vector Marketing Corporation or Cutco during the time when I was selling them. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I started off with my grandparents' contacts, started selling the bejeebers out of knives, mm-hmm. became a field sales manager, which is their highest level for independent salespeople. Yep. Then they gave me a chance to open my own office. So if you you know where you know where College Station is, yeah, mm-hmm. Texas, Texas A&M, A&M is, yeah. So imagine Longhorns, Aggies. Yeah. So Vector Marketing Corporation says, Eric, you can open up a second office, I believe, in Oklahoma City, Fort Smith, Arkansas, or College Bryan College Station, Texas. So I opened up the first Vector Marketing Corporation office in Bryan College Station, Texas. Wow. And started training sales reps and selling knives as an organization then um and had uh, about uh at that time maybe 48 consistent ones 48 50 guys just like me that had been selling them individually so right. did well at that and um i mean great money i think i was 19 and uh but in my mind and there's guys that are millionaires selling those knives. I'm mm-hmm. still friends with who was my branch manager when I was a sales rep. Mm-hmm. And we just talked last week. He's in California. But that didn't have any pizzazz for me, Mike. Yeah. That's not, to me, I wanted to, I'm sure for my upbringing, I wanted to be important. Yeah. And I'll just flat out say it. I mean, that's a fleshly answer. Lord willing, I've evolved. But at that time, I wanted to be important. I didn't want to be known as 
knives. I mean, could it have been something great? Yeah, for me it was. Yeah. So I tell Vector Marketing Corporation, hey, that's cool. Enjoyed it. Here's the office. Here's the infrastructure. Get someone in here, take it. I'm going to try college. So now I try college at Texas A&M. So you go back to college, okay. Yep. For about another semester. Yeah, about another semester. And I'm like, I have no idea what I want to do. Yeah. I, I'm just doing this because I thought this is what I'm supposed to do. Right. I heard my grandparents always say, Eric, go to college. Not my mom, but my grandparents. Eric, go to college. Eric, go to college. So I didn't want to be a burden on anyone. And yeah. um, so I roll over to a recruiter, and uh, Uncle Sam was ha happy to take me in. And uh, I'm sure he would be very happy with the state of the world right now to take in a, a lot more people. But uh, as I'm the exact same fighting weight as I was in the Army, we know 70% of the military right now is obese. Oh, wow. I'm not talking our special operations, dude. We just lost two West Coast SEALs last week, if you yep. followed the news. Yeah, I do. The, the military in general, and as crazy as the world is right now, Mike, we're getting infringed where we would have to have what we call higher intensity conflict, meaning set piece army style conflict. Think Russia, Ukraine. Mm -hmm. We can't win that anywhere in the world. The only place we can win is when you use the JSOC model, special operations forces model, small guys. And if you notice when we use those models, we still choose our enemies very, very carefully. Yeah. So I was just with a dude. Um, <laughs> I was with a dude from Africa and we're digressing, but we'll jump right back to uh, two days ago. And we were talking about what happened in Rwanda. Yeah. Right. With the Hutus and the Tutsis. That's 3 million people slaughtered via machete and everything else. And unbelievable. And that was in the mid nineties. Mm -hmm. That's why that's while I was in that's under, at that time I went in under Bush one, uh, then Clinton, where was our benevolence during that time? Yeah. There was no benevolence because in order to achieve that benevolence would have taken an unbelievable effort like, uh, Vietnam mm -hmm. and we wouldn't have won it. Yeah. We haven't been anywhere since World War II where we have attempted to go into another country, and it wouldn't work here either. That's why no one comes here. There's not another country in the world that we can go into and take that country over. And why in the world would you go interrupt another form of belief or government and think that you can put this Jeffersonian democracy into that place when right. they haven't lived like that at all? Yeah, and back then they were hung up on the peace dividend. Right. Because the Cold War was over and, you know, the wall had come down. And this was, that was a completely different time, man. Completely different yeah. initiative and different people at different people at the helm, too, you know. So different people at the helm, different vigor in the US, a different time. And um, it goes right back to the, the three boys on the bicycle in the past picture. Whereas you look at three boys, even if they're in sports now, Mike. You can take a picture of them. They're on their game system in their room or sitting here. Our son doesn't have a phone. He's 14, but all the all his boys on his baseball team, they all have their own phones. Oh, yeah. So and they have their own group chat with our coach. 
he's got to text me in order to get through to Chris John. Chris John's got to ask for permission to use my phone. Yeah. But yeah, so went into the army and we can go from there. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to the army. What are you yeah. doing in the army? Um, I was a light infantry mortarman. So, but I kind of had a non-circuitous route and, um, the only way anyone who would understand this would be someone who's done a few different things. And there's a lot of opportunity for it because the military's working all around the world at any given time. Right. And it didn't, it didn't just, there's a lot of logistical stuff. There's a lot of people that go around in these clothes. And I'm not talking all this contracting crap that you're, you hear about now that it's, it's very different. I don't want to get us too far off the field, but long story short, um, right there in basic training after I completed that and I had a, I believe they were called an RGV four contract, which was an airborne ranger contract. As soon as I finished basic training, infantry training, one station unit training, my company commander pulled me and he was an old ring knocker. He's from West Point pulled me and said, I'd like you to go to OCS, which is officer candidate school, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, kind of cool, whatever. And mm -hmm. um, so I did it. Um, didn't go to OCS. I basically became part of the training cadre right there for all the people coming through to be infantrymen. And really, I don't know how it happened. Um, why but i became real symbiotic with that company commander our xo sum i was kind of given carte blanche and but toward the very end that went on for about a year and some months i pulled my packet right after my majors board so i've been going through these boards you basically appear answer questions get dressed right dress you're in your your dress screens and um and I told them that's not what I wanted to do, much to their dismay. And how to, how had I arrived at that decision? Mm -hmm. And you're like, uh, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. I knew that I had went there. By then, I already knew that I had went there to find something that I wasn't going to find. And that was in my own personal journey. I thought that that would make me help turn me into like this some kind of badass guy that would garner some type of respect because you chose to do something harder. And really, I didn't necessarily see it there. I saw a system. And you got to realize how I grew up, Mike. I grew up, um, I had to cultivate my own autonomy. I had to be extremely self-sufficient, uh, self mm -hmm. being by myself. And I was already self-disciplined. So that's why I'm the exact same weight right here today as I am when I got out right before 1996. Right. And so I pulled that, which made me eligible for worldwide assignment, then went to Fort Carson uh, in Colorado. So that would have been early nineties and then about and became a light infantry. Well, no, a mechanized squad leader. We were mech there. And um, that was a time where Clinton decided or the Department of Defense decided that 
we were going to have a reduction in force. Mm -hmm. And so what you had was, is it Fort Devens maybe? Maybe it's Fort Devens. You had 10th Special Forces Group up there, mm -hmm. and they came to Fort Carson during that time. You had some dudes from Benning and Third Bat come over there, and then they started incorporating this Lursty unit at 4th ID. Right. And so we played around with that. There were some interesting people that were coming around on post. Um, I had done some stuff in my expert infantry badge uh, training, and then they made me cadre for that. Then I came up on orders, ended up going to Korea, mm -hmm. and they, they extended me there. But the crazy thing was some of those same guys that had been walking around at Fort Carson and regular clothes ended up in Korea. Mm -hmm. And this was at the first of the 503rd, kind of close to the DMZ. And so really what I did that whole last time, and honestly, if I wouldn't have had the backing, Mike, of some people way, way, way above me in my immediate command structure, I, I probably know telling what would have happened to me. I just always stayed squared away, made, made sure I was very competent in what I was supposed to do, but I was extremely non-conventional. Mm -hmm. And thank God uh, they're like, I guess he's good here, therefore he's an asset, but we know to keep him right here and ask him to perform in this way, he's a total yeah. pain in the ass, which I was. Yeah. So by the time I got to Korea, um, really what I did was I taught call for fire. Um and for my course, I set it way up on a mountain. It makes perfect sense. We were mortarmen. Uh, you get to see. You can call in assets better. And so I taught all the guys, soldiers coming in for the EIB testing there, taught them camouflage, taught the Marines that would come through the peninsula from time to time, and first special forces group because they have to have a um, adequate knowledge within all their weapon systems because at that job, at that time, their job purely was to go into different countries and train those indigenous peoples how to fortify their own armies and fight those wars. Right. And so you can't be an expert on everything. So I would teach those guys that. And um, then some of those same dudes gave me a chance to run ranges, really shooting. And that kind of morphed into a lot of offers to exchange that uniform and at that time, I still hadn't completed my degree. I had some college credits, but it gave um, me an opportunity to go do stuff like shoot for HRT, DEA, bunch of alphabet soup, individual SWAT teams. And I thought about it. I'm like, uh, but honestly, I didn't want to trade one uniform for another, even if it would have been a different type of uniform. By then, I was like... Um, I have an idea what I wanted to do and I'll back up a little bit when I was at Fort Carson, whereas, you know, you've got all these infantry soldiers. What do they do when we're not training or in garrison, not deployed, whatever. They're whoring, they're getting tattoos, um, drinking copious amounts and anything they can put their hands on. You know what I did? I went and volunteered in an emergency room on the weekends and the evenings overnight and um, i figured well that's really applicable it helps brush up on your skills and you're learning something new and i wanted to be useful 
I didn't feel like I was all that useful there. And so then while I was in Korea, I had already started taking some independent courses. I think Windows 94 had come out, so <laughs> computers and all this was like a big deal. So there were a couple, new, yeah. Yeah, a couple of civilian dudes teaching that in these damn Quonson huts. So I would take those classes. And because I had been in that hospital, I was like, all right, there's a sense of urgency here. So there's activity because the ER is a busy place. Mm -hmm. But this hospital's ginormous. So how does this business run? Mm -hmm. So I'd made the decision I was going to run hospitals. I had no idea what that entailed, but that was what was in my mind. And so I'd already applied to a school, Southwest Texas State University, as I was dwindling down in Korea to be accepted there and go into that program. And they accepted me. And uh, um, so when I wrapped up, I mean, I was, I beat feet and that's where I was going. So how long were you in the army? Five years. Okay. So you do your five years, mm -hmm. you leave the army, you go to Southwest, Southwestern state. Southwest Texas state university. There you go, Southwest Texas state. It's and, now. Yeah. And you learn how to run hospitals. Yeah. I now, go there. I go why, there. Why I, did you want to, why did you want to run hospitals? Uh, I knew I wanted to do something in business and I knew I wanted to do something. Now, of course, you know, this, I know this now, all business has activity, sure. but you only know what you know. And I always like kind of like that element of danger and uh, maybe you want to call it peril. And the ER had acclimated me to that. The Army had acclimated me to that. Um, and I was like, if you can put that in an envelope of this big business, well, maybe that's a that's a great thing. Okay. And so I'm like, let's jump in. So I uh, I get going over there. I actually meet my wife, 28 years now. Um, the first day of transfer orientation at college and we're both in the healthcare administration program and about a semester into that these two phds come in these older ladies and they said we have an entirely new program it's called long-term care administration there's an extreme deficiency in nursing home administrators in the state of texas really nationwide and what may, and of course they're pitching it to people in our major. Mm -hmm. And they said, what makes it attractive is, is you can complete your degree requirements, do a year long internship. And whereas you'll probably under healthcare administration have to go get a master's degree and then toil away in obscurity and maybe run a, a department in 10 years at a hospital. If you can sit for licensure and pass it, you're it. You run an entire nursing home. Hmm. So. I think you're already guessing what I decided to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I said, I don't like being an Indian. Yeah. I wanted to be the chief. Right. And uh, by then, I think I had uh, honed in and um, I wanted to be the chief. And so I did that. I uh, completed that, um, did a year-long internship the whole time, even though the Army was paying for tuition, books, fees, 
obviously there wasn't enough for housing there, which is kind of a disgrace. Should it be capped and all that? But it should, especially with what all these guys have gone through the last 20 something years. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was done after World War II, much more comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what kind of got us going in an upward tra- trajectory. But still worked three jobs. Um, by then I knew, you know, I didn't get, I had proposed to Roxanne a year and a half into dating. We said we'd finish school and get married. I knew she wanted 500 people at her wedding. I knew she wanted a rehearsal dinner in Mexico. I know we had to have a honeymoon and we had to have a reception in another town. So I was behind the eight ball, dude. I needed to make some money. (laughs) And so, yeah, we, I finished that, did the internship all the while working, finished college in three years. And um, then took another job up until right after we got married, until I could sit for licensure. So I went up to Austin, sat for licensure, passed it the first time, and um, then gave my notice at the, uh, the city of Harlingen. Yeah, in South Texas. They were foolish enough to hire me with no experience, so I sold them on that job. No rural or urban planning experience that I wanted to be the city planner for wow. that city. And they hired me and I did it. And so Home Depot's still mad at me because they said they wanted to come in on a corner. And I said, you ain't coming in here unless you do this, this, and this. And I built a sidewalk at their expense to perpetuity. But you know what? As luck would have it, many businesses tied into those sidewalks. and uh, But I made them spend a boatload of money and a lot of other businesses too. I was, hey, you know what's crazy, Mike? I was just, I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I just went by the ordinances that were in front of me, these subdivision sure. ordinances yeah. and these flats. And the commissioners and the county commissioners, if, you know, if they were in good with these people, they'd let a lot of things slide. You could have a, a circus come into town and we may need the availability for 500 people to park. Mm-hmm. Well, if they could squeeze them in and then block every arterial street with all that overflow and you couldn't get them in there, they didn't give up, you know what? Mm-hmm. And so I, I said, if you hired me, I, I should be able to interpret these things exactly as they're written. And boy, was that hell. And then I, it's a good thing I passed licensure because, yeah, my my uh, city manager comes in there one day and says to me, you know what, Eric? Uh, now, granted, it's a very low paying job. And if you demonstrate some initiative, um, you can do as much as you want. And I was young and vibrant and I'm like, I'm going to do every damn thing I can. I learned a ton. Mm -hmm. And he comes to me one day and he's like, this may not be the job for you. I'm like, really? He's like, so, I mean, if you don't kind of shore things up based on what I was telling you, Mm -hmm. you may not be here anymore. I'm like, do me an effing favor. I I mean, you don't think I can, Okay. And uh, then you look at it, what happened immediately after I get this call from Guillermo Chapa. Think about how important this is now, Mike, because you're a border state. Census 2000 is coming into play. Mm -hmm. And the remuneration of people, meaning they have to be counted accurately so that federal resources can be expended appropriately, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... uh, so this dude comes down from Washington, D.C., Guillermo Chapa, and uh, we become like this. And we didn't just do it in the city of Harlingen or Cameron County because we were so zealous and he was from there. It meant something to him. Mm-hmm. 
we broke down that whole South Texas, what they call the Rio Grande Valley. They ended up giving me a crazy award for doing it. And whether you were legal, illegal, colonia, you were living a shed behind a house there on the back alley. I counted you. If I could find you, I counted you. And uh, so my uh, city manager kind of became my bud up until when I when I left and left me alone. Wow. So you leave. Yep. Where do you go from there? So you you sit for licensing. I assume you passed your license test. I did. Uh, first facility that I ran, um, I was the assistant administrator of what we would call way back then a continuum care village. It's probably big in California now. So they had a what you would call a traditional with that level of acuity or people. I would let's just say that diminished in their activities of daily living and it gets Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement, a skilled mm -hmm. nursing facility. Mm -hmm. They had that. Around the campus, they also had an assisted living facility, right, mm -hmm. where people just need to be cued and this. And then around that, they had this ring of independent homes mm -hmm. where people just wanted to have community, but they were older. Yeah. And it was a real, other than the skilled nursing facility, the other components were a very highfalutin private pay deal. Mm -hmm. And they had had an administrator there for 35 years. It was this lawyer, this lady out of New York. And so she hired me to be her assistant administrator because she was kind of going to purportedly retire according to their board, but she really didn't want to go. <laughs> and, um, so get in there, do that for a little bit. And, uh, but then I got an opportunity to run my own home. And by then I was like, this lady's not going to give me really the authority to do what I, I really need to do. I mean, she was tight in there. And I think she stayed there up until when she died, like seven years after I left. Wow. But I got the opportunity to be the administrator, run my first facility in Houston. Okay. And so move from the Valley there to run that one. So you run your first facility. Yep. Run that learn? one. <laughs> um, man. I thought I would be in, if you want to call it gerontology for like my business career. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you another thing. When I was in college, I ended up being a research assistant uh, for this guy, Dr. Romaldo Z. Juarez. So uh -huh. obviously a Hispanic guy is from Mexico and he was what we call an ethno gerontologist. So the study of like minority elderly, his focus was on the Hispanic elderly. Okay. So we hit it off. He makes me his research assistant and we compile at that time, the most comprehensive bibliography of the Hispanic elderly, just in resources where someone could have a one-stop shop to find everything they need. This is at Southwestern um, Texas State? Yeah, I forgot right. about that gig, which kind of, so obviously, and I had done an internship at a nursing home in order to get licensure conferred. But one of the quick things I realized is you have all these residents, many of them, I'm talking in really bad shape. I'm mm -hmm. putting this real simple. We, this isn't a show on acuity or healthcare. Right. 
but then you have people that a lot of times older women, younger women, they're not the most stout or strong. You know how hard it is for them? Let's say someone needs to be repositioned, moved, or heaven forbid, um, has a bed sore, pressure sore, ulcer, whatever you want to call it, and they have to move this 300-pound person. Mm -hmm. How do they do it? And right. so I'm like, you know what? While I'm doing this internship, I'll become a certified nurse's aide too. And what did that do? Um, hey, if you needed help in whatever capacity, cleaning, feeding, transferring, because I'm a young guy, I'm a strong guy, I'm going to be all about it. So fast forward to when you end up running a facility and you're an administrator and you can still do those things. It's no different than being in the military or leading from the front in your corporate environment. Typically, the people that you're supposed to lead will follow you if they've seen that whatever you're asking them to do, you've already done how many times yeah. and you're not adverse to doing it. So um, what did I learn that a lot of these people, uh, man, have no family. They're on their own. Um, unless you have some really keen leadership, which I tried to apply there because um, they paid me a boatload at that time to go run that first facility. Yeah. Um, and it was a big for-profit chain uh, that owned like 130 of those homes. But the process whereby if you were going to get the state via Medicaid to pay for it and you had to spend down resources and essentially become destitute, then the home would only be paid this much. Um, it just taught me about the uh, kind of the reimbursement dilemmas. I'll call them damn scams. And how can you act adequately ensure a quality of care unless you have a staff and you can get those people in there that, have that mindset and are willing to go above and beyond to service these people whose needs are so great. And it's really tough. And so what I would simply do to make money in a home, I realized that under Medicare, if I could skill these residents, meaning I could adequately assess them. So I was like this with my director of nurses mm -hmm. who I hired, I got rid of the corporate deal and I didn't like her. I mm -hmm. wanted my own person. And, uh, uh, brought her in from the Texas Medical Center, and we would do this comprehensive evaluation. I would skill them in two or three modalities. I'd get them into therapy. If anything, it kept them active. It mm -hmm. kept different things going, and that's when I made that home start generating money. And um, But it is a... That is a mind-numbing, un... Um, you're going to have to have a real love, a real service-minded heart yeah. and service-minded mind to do that job well. And so I did that one at that facility until that company, that chain, filed bankruptcy. Wow. And when they filed bankruptcy, I went to a nursing home convention. A recruiter from another big chain then said, hey, why don't you come to Beaumont? Uh, we have a home in need of an administrator. At that time, I, I was the youngest nursing home administrator in the state of Texas, wow. at least practicing. Yeah. 28, 29, 30, 30, maybe right in there. 
Wow. Most of these people were old and crusty, holding yeah. on to their license and or had been grandfathered in before they had to be licensed. Mm -hmm. A lot of them, no degrees in it. Not that that's even important, but they had fallen into that 20 something, 30 years ago. And now they were administrators. Mm -hmm. um, but so I come to run that facility and um, I did that, uh, ran that one. And that's what moved us over to where we live now. Okay. My wife had finished her degree, then went on to get her master's degree, but she was on the acute care side of the house. So as the Lord would have it, I got that home offered to me in Beaumont. She got offered to be the director of materials management at a big hospital here. Okay. And so we're, we're both in it just on different sides of the house. And I ran that one up until when I had my bookkeeper go deliver some physician's orders for us. She got in a wreck. In the course of doing so, got hurt. Her husband was a refinery worker. They had two kids. He was out of work at that time. <laughs> and they denied her medical claim, our insurance medical claim, meaning our own company. And um, so she's going to have to foot the bill. <laughs> well, what does Eric do? I've been fighting my whole life. So I went to bat for him and got in a fight with corporate counsel over, uh, I'm not going to name the company. They've already filed bankruptcy two times and started under new names. Wow. Um, but I didn't win the fight with corporate counsel and they fired me. Yeah. And so that probably was, it didn't matter, Mike. I mean, that, that was probably my greatest gift because I think I've already shown you a predisposition to kind of want to do things my own way. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's when I fell into uh, chasing guys and equipment all over the country for the last 20 something so, years. So talk about that for a second, because you, you basically, so you, so you go to bat for the bookkeeper, right? Mm -hmm. And they end up, they end up firing you over it, yep. which as it turns out and is a, is a huge blessing. Okay. Yep. You know, looking back, of course, right. Hindsight being 2020. Yeah. How do you get from running it to just imagine this, right? You're running these homes. Yeah. You're the youngest guy in Texas doing it. Mm -hmm. You get fired. And then how do you end up chasing assets? Like, how do you end up? I mean, just walk us through that, that process. How does that happen? Yeah. <laughs> I had an uncle. I was not close to him in any way, shape, or form. This was my mom's brother. Okay. Now, keep in mind, I already told you what kind of happened in my childhood. And I mean, I can't really speak to it because I understand it better now. Yeah. But my mom had two brothers. She didn't have any contact with them. Right. Had some form of disdain for her own parents. Those were the grandparents that helped me. Right. So I did not have a relationship with this guy. Um, I had seen him growing up a few times. Um, but I knew that he lived in another town. Now, gr granted, we had moved to Beaumont. Right. So now I was closer to where he was actually living. And he had a big tow company. Okay. And so he reached out to me. He's, he knew what I did at that time. And um, he had been a CPA and a healthcare accountant way back when. Okay. A whole other story. And, but 
he understood what I was doing and he knew it's a transitory job. Administrators often move and go run new facilities. He's like, well, Eric, until you figure out where you're going, why don't you come cool your heels with me? And I'm like, okay, I can make that kind of short, kind of long commute and uh, see what it's all about. Well, during the course of that, since he had that infrastructure already in place, lenders, meaning financial institutions, had been calling him to see if someone wants to give their equipment back, meaning voluntarily, mm-hmm. will, he, will he go pick it up? Right. Well, sure. So he was doing that. What I didn't know is that he was going through a uh, a nasty, nasty divorce. And dude really didn't want a discernible form of income for one. You can say, hey, that's a travesty, and it is. Um, Or you can say, um, because of all that, his head really wasn't in the game, and it wasn't. And really what he wanted was someone that he believed was competent, and he thought because we have this blood that I'd come in there and shore everything up for him and make it great. And you know what? I did because <laughs> I'm still in the mode of um, validating my own self through effort and proving that I'm good enough. Right. Still, still in that quest. And for a man and still a young man, yeah, you're, you're going to show that you're better or you're different. That's the only way you define yourself. So these lenders were making that call, but then they're like, hey, what if the dudes don't want to give the stuff back? Right. You think you can go get it? Sure, let's try it out. All right. So got going on that. That was going pretty good. I cleaned up all kinds of accounts for him. Um, basically shoot him away and said, look, we'll do this. Keep your books. Take care of all this. I've got everything out in the field. And by then it started really happening. Now we made a financial agreement and you got to realize I'd went from that young age at that time, which was a ways back. It may be nothing in California money, but six figures in Texas at that time was a lot of money. Oh, sure. And, but now I'm getting paid nothing and I'm living out on the road and taking care of all this stuff for him. And so finally, my wife and I went and met with him, pretty much begged him to fulfill what we had discussed on compensation. He wasn't willing to do it. And uh, I invited him over for uh, that coming up Thanksgiving dinner and uh, brought him in. And after everyone was full and satiated and kind of left except him, I said, look, man, we're either going to break this down. I can help you grow. This is all I'm asking for. Or I'm going off on my own. And because I realized I was good at that and I knew I could do it. And uh, he balked. He said he he wasn't going to do it. And I thought, well, geez, this will be easy. These people that we are working with currently will certainly use them. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know he'd be spiteful, pick up the phone and tell them to never use me. Mm -hmm. And so that happened. He moved along his way personally, shut down his doors, which I knew was happening. Mm -hmm. He didn't have anyone to do the work anymore, and he sure didn't want to have to give that to. So I sat there in limbo, and I'm like, what in the world? But the saving grace there was 
they had never been able to get any equipment picked up in Louisiana, Mike, because that was still under, when it came to commercial equipment, meaning big farm implement equipment, yellow iron, construction equipment, class mm. eight, meaning tractors, trailers, 18 wheelers. Yeah. It still was under Napoleonic law, meaning you couldn't go like everywhere else we worked, which was in a self-help environment, meaning you have a civil contract. If you fall behind, we just go and, you know, I could just go in, garner entry, hotwire the tractor, drive off. In Louisiana, you had to get in front of these people or find them, get them to sign what's called a state of Louisiana voluntary release and personal property receipt, mm -hmm. meaning they agree to waive all their rights to said piece of collateral. They agree to be sued for the deficiency, meaning once the lender brings it back, sells it at fair market value, applies it to what was already owed. If they still owe money on it at that time after the sale, they're going to be sued for that. And so no one had been any good at getting these releases signed. Right. Well, I'd already started in Louisiana and I'm like, okay. So I sat there for like about a month and a half after all this happened. And my phone rings. It's this dude from, um, at that time, Mercedes-Benz Commercial Credit, which is now Daimler Truck Financial. And people don't realize that Mercedes-Benz owns Freightliner Truck, Travel Centers of America, Truck Stops, all that stuff. He's like, Eric, if I use you and I was told not to, do you think you can take care of Louisiana? I'm like, I already showed you I could. And I'm like, you're going by someone's information that hadn't done it one damn time. Mm -hmm. So let's go. So, I mean, that's when you learn about juggling credit cards because it's going to be a while before you get paid and you got to be operational. And that's what I did. And, uh, ran up a hellified bill on about four credit cards until my, uh, uh, my receivables started coming in because I was really, really, um, successful at doing it and definitely not just there but my given territory which expanded to texas louisiana mississippi arkansas some in the new mexico some in oklahoma um and louisiana for sure no one picked up more commercial equipment than i did for that client which morphed into others during it went full bore i'd probably pick up just in louisiana alone 25 trucks and trailers hmm. uh Probably every week and a half, Mike, just in Louisiana, deliver the, now I was covering other territories too, mm -hmm. and deliver those to Jackson, Mississippi, sometimes Fort Worth or Memphis, Tennessee. And um, that's what, uh, that's what broke it open. I had the ability to deal with all those people. Didn't matter if they were rural. It didn't matter if you were in the devil's backbone in friggin' New Orleans. And that continued at that feverish clip up until when Harvey hit. Hurricane Harvey that decimated, not Harvey, Katrina. Right. Yeah, Katrina that decimated New Orleans. And, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's what got me into it. And uh, I was running those other states. And uh, then it, uh, I mean, at different clients' behest. Um, I mean, I was so busy, Mike, by then we'd had our daughter mm -hmm. and I knew that, hell, my marriage and how was that going to work if I was never home? Mm -hmm. And here I was, uh, it's like an athlete, to be honest with you. 
and there's so much involved the chance of uh every day was dangerous just being on the roads dangerous but going into places taking equipment out from under people and at that time if you gave me the assignment yes military stuff i was still very tactical at that time i probably honed those skills much better with just the baseline they had provided me but the streets taught me everything else but if someone gave me an assignment you always lost your equipment. Now, if you could get paid up or paid off before I found it or found you, good for you. But I never gave you a chance to even breathe. And because I wanted to show I was the best in that industry and we were mm -hmm. competing against some really monolithic clients. And, uh, but then whether it was financial security, emotional maturity, you had already seen the dregs of life by then. I started having a heart and uh, negotiating with people. And so, yeah, for two years there, I bought a big RV. And even though we had a couple of rent houses at that time, our own personal residence, I took my wife and our daughter on the road before uh, she had to start kindergarten. And then, and that, I mean, <laughs> those two repossessed more commercial equipment than the people who at that time who professed to do it. <laughs> And because during those years, no one put their hands on more stuff, got in hot wired and drove it away than this idiot in front of you. And that morphed into clients saying, we really want you to cover the nation in its entirety. Mm -hmm. But I was scared for one. I was dumb for two. I was like, it was so entrenched to do that work. It required so much of you. I was like, how is someone going to replicate me or that somewhere else? Mm -hmm. So I bought. But then this one client of mine who I'd really gotten a good relationship with, it's like, Eric, what would it take for you to do this? And that was key equipment finance. Mm -hmm. So Key Bank out of Ohio at that time. I'm like, you know what? In order to get me to do that, um, and I put a number out there. I was already at the top tier of how they compensated people in my business. Mm -hmm. um, but I threw out this crazy number one, because I was afraid to have to try to do that work. <laughs> and so part of me didn't think they would do it, mm -hmm. but they agreed. <laughs> and um, they agreed. And so then I went from the assignments that I handled myself personally to about 150 other all over the country every single month. And that's when my wife, um, who had already left when my daughter came about, left running hospitals. I said, you got to come home. I mean, come on. And um, by then, yes, yeah, she was running her whole her own whole hospital in Houston. <laughs> and I'm like, it's too much stress, too much. We're moving back and forth. So she had been managing the rent houses that this business's money would allow to buy, allow us to buy. That's where we chose to invest. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I can't do this if you don't help me. And so what she did at that time, and I'd kind of gotten active, well, actually very active in industry circles, like in the legislation regarding it, these trade associations. So now I had this new network of people. 
And since I was an advisor to the executive board of that group at that time, I knew I could work with these guys and they would try to do a good job for me. Mm-hmm. And so we started shipping these assignments out all over the country and um, getting them done and uh, generally well-meaning customers because, you know, people have hard times. Anything that relies on wheels and perfect operational ability to go down the highway is going to have trouble. It's hard. Mm-hmm. And um, so for those type of guys, these guys could solve those accounts, but you always had these hard accounts or they wouldn't complete them in a geographic locale. So assignments would pile up. So then what I morphed into was um, I would wait for that to happen. Ultimately it's my name, it's my company. And I would, uh, I'd fly in or drive in and um, clean it up. That's your thing. Yeah. So, and then that was a great run. That was several years there. Then am I keeping you from asking any questions? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. So, so yeah. So how far are we from today at this point? A, a long ways. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, really where that went was that probably went up to about the end of 2010, 11, and then everything, the bottom dropped out. Yeah. And you're like, how did the bottom drop out? Uh, There was literally nothing else to repossess at that time because in 2008, seven to eight, we had this declared financial crisis. You Mm -hmm. remember that? Yeah, I lived through it. Yeah. So a lot of it predicated on crazy loans done in California. Yeah, Um, yeah, I did. And um, I mean, man, so and what what would they call those damn things? Oh, man, they have an acronym and the on wall street forum i don't know all these derivatives but something on high-risk housing i i don't know but i was already seeing it out there um because before that was declared man i was repoing businesses left and right mike i was repoing equipment left and right and i was like what i didn't know at that time when they gave me that big contract was for Key Bank, the reason they agreed to that amount, I was so dumb still. I mean, you learn every day. I was just happy to do a job really well and execute and say, look, I did it for you. Right. I had no idea that all those accounts were what in their what they call their litigation queue, mm-hmm. their loss recovery queue. They were already constituted on their books as lost. Right. They weren't taking a chance. They had already done uh they had already done the economics of it and determined this equipment still had worth if eric can get it then pay him right and they already written so, it off is what you're saying so for tax correct. purposes it was already gone it right? was gone whatever you recovered was a bonus and i i probably recovered 90 percent of it mike And um, so after that, and they paid me well enough to do it and gave me enough volume where I could be in these areas concentrated because equipment's on the road all the time and you can't be somewhere all the time. And it's a a tough deal. But anyway, so that ran through that. The bottom dropped out, at least on the A-plus paper, getting up there, or the A-paper, B-plus paper. That dried up. So for lenders like at that time, PACAR, 
who owns Peterbilt, mm-hmm. um, MHC, a huge Kenworth portfolio, um, GE, Daimler Truck Financial, Freightliner. Mm-hmm. Unless you were like top tier, they stopped writing loans. Yeah. And I remember that. And so there was nothing left to repossess. Right. And I'm like, uh, all right, now what the hell do I do? <laughs> and by then, though, I mean, I could mess around because I, I don't remember how many we had bought by then, but we we had several rent houses by then. But really, my that was my wife's template at that time. And she would purchase them. She had her own designated crew that only worked for her. We'd kind of buy these distressed homes for cash that other people would kind of walk away from. We knew what we wanted to put into them and we'd rent them. Mm-hmm. And so that was going on. And then I'm like, but man, I got to be viable. I'm a man. I'm used to running and gunning. So I started looking into oil field stuff. Mm-hmm. And then this non-destructive testing, like imagine you're um, surveying welds and seeing if they're adequate and stuff when like refineries are on offshore rigs and different things. Then I found out about this another niche thing called rope access, non-destructive testing. So at my own dime, I go to rope access school and I pass do well. And there was this old guy who was cadre or one of the instructors. The moment I completed that course, he's like, Hey, Eric, we want to hire you. I'm like, you do? And he's like, yeah. And this was a company called Real Group out of Aberdeen, Scotland. Okay. And what they would do is their bread and butter were really drops inspections. So their biggest contract was with Transocean and their drill ships. So we'd helicopter out to the drill ship, climb up to the top of the derrick, for lack of a better term. And we would repel off of it, didn't matter the weather, didn't matter the what. And we'd do drops inspections, meaning potential hazards and falling. We'd do like mag particle, rudimentary weld testing. But that was really our bread and butter. So we were glorified monkeys on a rope. And, they, you know, it, it paid well. And after they brought me on, they sent me to NDT school. And I did that for a while. And <clears throat> that was kind of drying up because... You had had the big BP oil spill. Mm-hmm. What's NDT trading? What's that? Oh, NDT. Non-destructive testing. Gotcha. Okay. So in order to test it, you're not doing any harm. You're just examining what's presented to you to gotcha. say if it's foolproof or not. Yeah, that BP and oil spill was right in your neck of the woods. It was right there. And so... Transocean, which was their biggest client, was starting to pull out. They were going to start taking their drill ships to Africa. So I was like, son of a gun. Okay, we're going to have to go there. But in the meantime, they started taking some land-based contracts because remember during that time, you start having this shell boom, right? The fracking Mm -hmm. and shell boom all over the country. Yep. And so they started doing some land-based jobs um up in arkansas so went up there for a little bit and but then my phone started ringing and this probably was now into 12 maybe 13 2013 Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i'm like well damn and the thing i didn't like about it obviously i needed to work 
but these guys would go out there and this was their life and there's such a copious amounts of money coming in and all these per diems and i mean oil filled and all the ancillary services it's such a wash you could go out there on one of these rigs get that job done in three days but these dudes would be out there for three weeks milking it hmm. now you you got to realize mike i'd already spent more time away from my family and on the road why would i want to do that i was at a right. different place in my life and well, so you're not, a, you're not a three-week you know milking it guy that's that's no. that much we figured out already right so no if that, you get it that, done in three days you're getting it done in three days and then you're out of there you're on to the next yeah thing. and so to me that's death and i'd already come up what what i started doing is is when i went to a different uh a different rig or drill ship i started getting to know everyone from right. the damn uh um the damn company man the rig manager so, for example, it may be the exploration company, BP. I'm going to know who their representative is. It may be a trans-ocean rig. I'm going to know who their representative is. Schlumberger's out there, Baker Hughes, all the safety companies, they're all out. I'm going to know every one of them because I was already like, you know what? I'm going to start my own damn rope access company. Mm -hmm. I've been in business a long time, and this is BS, and I know yeah. exactly how to do it. And, uh, but by that time, my phone started ringing. I'm like, if I'm going to be a monkey on a rope, I might as well be my own monkey again. And right. re the repo world opened up. And, uh, then from, <laughs> I had this, <laughs> I had solicited these guys for years, General Electric. They always balked at me. And I'm not going to say because the vendors they use there is any type of incestuous relationship but when you get into these big companies how deals actually get cut mm -hmm. what these people are taken to do or offered in order to confer business i will say it's it's a whore game yeah it's literally and figuratively and yeah. so uh that wasn't me and i uh, said look my work either merits it or it doesn't and that doesn't always work in corporate america so mm -hmm that I would always be with all their equipment doing my job for other lenders. And I'd let, I um, would reach out. You want my help? You want this? No one could find this stuff. And they always told me no. So then I started calling them and saying, look, I'm with all your equipment again. I'm over here in Odessa, Texas, because since there was a shell boom, mm -hmm. if you're in the service business, the only way you're going to get a Baker Hughes contract is they're going to say, Hey, you can't just have two trucks. I need, 10 late model Peterbilts. And uh, so what does the dude do to go get that contract? He goes and takes a loan. Right. And unless everything is perfect, he's not going to make it. Yeah. So I'd be in, I'd be in Odessa with all the GE stuff. And I found out that because I'd already found the people involved mm -hmm. in most cases, they'd already surrendered their equipment to me because I treated them like a person and that's how a lot of these things went. Mm -hmm. um, but it'd be like, these guys were assholes to me mm -hmm. and they're not getting their equipment. They've been threatening me for the last year and a half. Mm -hmm. And you, you found me, you came in and we're sitting here drinking coffee. And so here's your stuff, but F them. Mm -hmm. So I would call GE. They'd say no, but where's the equipment? Well, I used to be courteous and tell them not anymore. Yeah. I'd be like, good luck. Get one of your guys to go do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so 
one of those guys finally reached out to me. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's cool. And I'm like, let me see your contract. They sent me their contract, but it, it didn't matter how nasty they were, whether they mistreated anyone or not, whether everything was perfectly kosher or not. They weren't indemnifying me. I was liable for anything that their collections floor did and or any other agent previous to me. So I'm like, as much as I want this contract, nope. And they're like, well, what are you going to do, Eric? I said, send it up to New York. And I made friends with their attorney, uh, Josephine Chang. Took me six months, reworked the contract. Then probably out of spite because they already had the people they did business with. They held off and held off. And they sent me the first batch of accounts that they also had written off. Well, you know, I'm going to get it. And I did. And so from 14 through 17 for them and PACAR and other clients, I mean, I went on, I was a lot smarter, Mike. And I had networks built up by then. And if you're chasing Bulgarians, Lithuanians, Russians in Chicago, you need networks. If I'm sent to Otay Mesa and I'm sent to Chula Vista, south of you, mm-hmm. uh, you need networks. Mm-hmm. And if I'm sent further up your state on the 99 and I've got to work everywhere from Bakersfield to Yuba City, you need networks. And so like if you were from Punjab and you're Indian and you're hauling all the produce that feeds America coming out of California, no one could touch any of those groups except me. And mm-hmm. so they gave me carte blanche. And I mean, it just in your state alone, I cleaned that entire state up so GE could facilitate sale to Bank of Montreal, BMO Harris Bank. Gotcha. And uh, so that, that was one hellified run. And um But yeah, the work's been amazing. I mean, I've dealt with every cartel character you can imagine. Um, Caught serial killers where the marshal service can't catch them, not physically, but told them he's right here because I was just with him the night before. And this was a guy who used his truck to pick up women and going back south where I talked about. I'm not going to give you the specifics because he's still in the hokey on death row. (laughs) (laughs) and um he told me he was going to kill me too i said i'm a lot different than a woman you can jump anytime um but really really bad dudes so many businesses illegitimate but they needed legitimate businesses to make it work in the banking system um stuff you just wouldn't believe and that taught me everything but it was all built on uh being able to find these people, walk in and uh, make things happen wherever you dropped in, starting with really knowing nothing. And uh, so that was a great run. All during that time, we bought uh, real estate by the bejeebers. And so that became really big. And um, I really stopped probably running and gunning about 17, 18. I still do it to this day, but I kind of pick and choose. I have a couple of clients where I am their internal adjuster Mm -hmm. and they give me a lot of latitude, but for the past few years, I mean, I enjoyed going around the country with our daughter who was great at volleyball and she ended up going to college to play volleyball, but hurt her knee. Mm. Um, So now she's starting a new school and now my son, he's big in baseball. So I've had a chance to coach him and do all that stuff, which is real meaningful. And then, uh, 
for a year and a half, she's been on the job now, but my wife was in campaign mode and kind of had to change the metric and the whole dynamic down here where we live and became an elected official who's in charge of all of our voting and amongst other things. And so I've played, I guess, a, uh, I went back from being at the forefront and something that no one even knew what goes on to, I guess, being a, uh, a behind the scenes guy on a lot of other stuff. Yeah. So that, that comes to today. So she gets elected. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned to me that she's the first Republican to hold that seat in how long? Um, ma'am. Was it 20 Jefferson, years? Uh, 20, about 20 years. And wow. uh, Jefferson County was a predominantly Democratic county. And, um, but she, there was so much fervor and excitement for her. And she has an amazing story. I mean, I told you we met first day in college, mm -hmm. but you've got to realize that half her family is still in Mexico. Yeah. That's her mom's side. So before she ever made it to college, up into her teen years, she grew up as a migrant farmer. Gotcha. So grandpa would load them up and some of that family would go to Wachula, Florida and pick citrus. Mm -hmm. Or some of that family would go back and forth to Minnesota every year and hoe sugar beets and apples and all that kind of stuff. And I'm talking while they're spraying the glyphosate, the rain and the this and that. I mean, they'd be out there and uh, they'd take trash bags, wrap themselves up up until when they started baking because they were so cold at the beginning of the day mm -hmm. and doing all that stuff. And so she has a really unique story. Courses run hospitals, has a master's degree help run my business, um, our real estate stuff. And uh, so when she jumped into that race after some groups had approached her, I mean, she, uh, she just gave it a whole different dimension. And of course you have to get out and connect to your constituents or potential sure. constituents, voters. Yeah. Regional and, politics. And, and what have I done all these years? I've made a living on the streets. Right. Mm -hmm. And if I need to go in and understand you and have a relationship with you and tell you about someone or something. That's something I wrote. I'm real effective at. And when it comes to strategic signage and how things need to be, there was no way she was going to lose. Yeah. So that, and uh, so, yeah, she turned that apple card over and that, that created a, a red wave down here. Everyone on that ticket with her um, other than one Republican won. That's awesome. So tell us about the podcast. How did that come about? <laughs> Man, that's crazy. Here, we need another dip for that because my yeah. show's for men. Mike's listeners, he may have women on there, but since my show's for men and I talk about Black Buffalo all the time, we're just going to go ahead and indulge. Uh -huh. um, the way it came about, was I guess in a monetary material sense or whatever you want to call those pedigrees. Now it wasn't something that was given to us. Um, I mean, I gave you the tip of the iceberg of some of the work involved. It was never easy, but I guess we had achieved worldly success. Um, we were pretty content with where we were. 
And a little bit before my wife took that next step, she came to me and she's like, Eric, we have everything, but I want us to be closer and I want us to know each other better. And I was like, what in the hell does this mean? And um, I'm like, don't we already know each other? I mean, we spent our whole lives together. We work for ourselves. We've done all this. And, and, um, she's like, no, there's more and I don't want to miss out on it. And man, that created a lot of push and shove because I'm like, you're telling me I'm deficient, right? Mm -hmm. I haven't, I haven't made the cut when I've spent all this time of my life trying to prove that I am worthy. I can make the cut. I can do better than that. And that created a, uh, a whole process and, uh, whereby I had to, uh, I had to look in, I had to look in at myself, certainly had to be looking over my shoulder at my spouse in ways I had never before. In fact, I didn't even know about it. Mm-hmm. and I had to look up too because we're talking some, I mean, I, I'm, I'm good at hustling and service and all that, but these were things I was wholly unfamiliar with. And so marriage is a covenant. I think it's, I think it's godly ordained. It's no different than what God made with his chosen people. If you believe that way, Israel or not. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that effectively, you can't, there is no man. Now, I will tell you this. There are different thresholds, Mike. You can decide you want to be a marathon runner, and you may get up to where you're running, I don't know, 10, 12 miles, three to four times a week, maybe once a week you do a really long run. But do you think you're ever going to be a Kenyan marathoner and run four-minute miles over 26.2 or three miles? over a 26.2 or three mile race. So what I'm saying is, is everyone's own needs or wants are different Mm -hmm. and everyone's thresholds are different. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just going to simply say, I believe I have a high threshold. I believe my wife has a high threshold. And um, I went to work to find out what all this means. And in the course of finding out about all that, I learned a lot learned about a lot of things I could have done different, Mm -hmm. more efficient, more better, why I chose to do them that way. What is it all the way back from my childhood that had harangued me? And you've heard me echo these things in here. Yeah. And honestly for her too. And um, I'm like, you know what? I've done all these things. And I think that uh, I'd kind of lost my voice. And I'm like, this needs to be talked about. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear about all this machismo bullshit and this and that um, on all these YouTubes and a lot of podcasts. And that's great. Um, we've got some badass operators that are doing podcasts, mm-hmm. meaning military operators. But mm-hmm. how's their family life? Yeah, I, I believe it is so easy. Or choose me any CEO. Mm-hmm. that has an enormous amount of responsibility who's doing a fantastic job how are his kids and family life yeah um 
there is no such thing as balance. No. Only communication and some type of understanding. Well, there's bias because there's bias, th right? Yeah, that's because if because you, you put some, yeah, yeah, I mean, you've got to sit down with the people that are important in your life, and and with you, it's your spouse. Okay, I sat down with my spouse and my kids, and I just basically said, "Look, this is this is what I believe." we need to do next mm -hmm. and and here's why and here's what we're looking to accomplish right and what that does is when your life gets out of balance the kids know oh dad's not dad's not neglecting us he's out building our future dad's mm -hmm. not doing something that he'd rather do than be with us he's actually out paying the price dad's out <laughs> investing you with me oh yeah you're, and your wife is on the same deal because you know there are dinners that you're not going to make there are you know there are times that you're not necessarily going to be able to be where you're supposed to be yeah and, and if you if you have buy-in from the people that are important in your life okay again like you said it's communication right yeah once you have that communication down and once you have buy-in from everybody, then you can go forward and you can live in a, a not so balanced life and still everybody's happy. There's less in the way of resentment. There's less in the way of discord. You know what I mean? So, well, so yeah. tell me what your favorite thing is about your, what's your podcast called by the way? Well, hey, real quick on that. You hit that nail right on the head, Mike, because we already had that buy-in. We had a vision. And probably what led to that fork in the road for my wife and I was that that had been completed yeah. in its entirety. And now it was time for a new vision. Yeah. And we hadn't figured that out yet. Yeah. Um, so that was the genesis of the podcast. So what's During it all that comfortable, oh, it's called the Comfortable and Chaos podcast yeah, comfortable in chaos with eric helberg and so i debunk a lot of the worldly stuff of success and masculinity um i think any man that has any modicum of fire in the belly can go be great at just about anything unless he you know, i'm not going to go be minute bowl and play for the 76ers we know that but i can uh I've proven that I can take just about anything, apply myself to it and go make it work. But what does it take to do that? And I am just saying that there are some different things you can consider along the way based upon what it is that you and your loved ones truly want. Yeah. And that that is a recipe that only you two can create. And so I talk about all that. I mix in some war stories. I mix in repo stories. I talk about marriage. I talk about being a dad. Um, and I do little eclectic things in history because I believe a man would rather live out his relationship with his spouse and his kids instead of sitting talking about it all the time. Yeah. To yeah. a man that is an anthema and it's like, uh, no. Yeah. You don't want to do that. And so I just talk about all those things and I put an eclectic mix of uh, history and things that uh, 
people really don't hear about and we'll charge it with a little bit of politics or it takes on uh, it depends what comes to my mind and then i just i unwrap it that's cool yeah it's i truly believe that anybody can succeed at anything if they want it bad enough right oh yeah you just gotta Mm -hmm. want it bad enough and you gotta get the buy-in from the people around you Mm -hmm. i totally agree Listen, Eric, really, really appreciate you being our guest on the Mike Litton Experience. This has been a lot of fun. I've really <laughs> enjoyed getting to know you and obviously through through connection, your wife. Um, and I'm super excited about your podcast and super excited about where you're headed. Um, and I'm looking forward to us being together again. Um, and thank you again for doing this, man. I really, really appreciate you. Well, Mike, you're super hospitable, and I know you're a mover and shaker over there, and you're involved in a lot of stuff, so I appreciate you taking the time and allowing me to come on your show. I enjoyed it as well. That was fun, buddy. Thanks again. All right. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate you. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton Experience. If you did, do us a favor. Smash that subscribe button. Tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program. And wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? Check out Calendly.com slash Rio 760.